This is the podcast version of the YouTube series, From Here to the Stars, which is created by the Interstellar Research Group. I am your host, Stephen Ewan Cobb. Our guest today is Dr. James Schwartz, a leading internationally recognized expert in the ethics and philosophy of space exploration. He teaches philosophy at Wichita State University. About 10 or 15 years ago, I was interviewing, uh, excuse me, I was uh, moderating a panel. And uh, the topic of the panel, it was a science fiction convention, the topic was, should we colonize Mars? And a buddy of mine was on the panel with me, um, uh, James Maxey, who I admire and respect and generally agree with. And he startled me with his answer, which was, no, we should not. Um, and he went on to explain that... Um, if we colonize Mars, we would be bringing in unavoidably bacteria and microbes with us that could um, uh, negatively impact any microbes that may already li be living natively on Mars. And uh, you wrote a paper about that very topic recently, uh, where no planetary protection policy has gone before. Um, it was in the International Journal of Astrobiology. Um, I've only read the, asp the, uh, the abstract. If you would, talk about uh, your explanations in that and uh, also the justification that you make. So, uh, I mean, the broader topic here is planetary protection, which if folks watching don't know a whole lot about, uh, there are policies that the scientific community has gotten together to devise uh, in order to safeguard the viability of the search for evidence of life. Uh, in solar system exploration, and Mars is one of the, the bodies that, that calls for greater protection measures. Keep in mind, none of this is legally binding, but the, the, the policies are widely implemented by the space programs that have conducted uh, Mars exploration. Uh, so, I mean, first and foremost, there's this concern about protecting the scientific investigations, uh, because a, a lot of folks are going to say that trying to answer this question about whether human beings are alone in the universe is one of the most important questions we could seek to answer via space exploration. And so wouldn't it be a shame if we sort of precluded ourselves from having any non-ambiguous findings when it comes to life detection missions or, or missions that are searching for remnants of past life? Um, and what really plays front and center in those policies is this sort of astrobiological investigation. And what I wonder is, you know, aren't there other areas of science uh, that could stand to benefit from some kind of similar protection regime where, you know, maybe you've got a certain kind of climatological or geological investigation you want to uh, carry out on Mars or some other planetary body, uh, one that could be affected negatively uh, if, you know, careful steps aren't taken to make sure that the measurements you're taking are actually the sort of endemic natural Martian measurements as opposed to the result of some kind of perturbation in the environment due to um, you know, either robotic landers or, or, or crewed missions to the surface of the planet. So what I'm really asking in that paper, first and foremost, is uh, do other sciences matter uh, as far as being concerned about preserving the viability of good scientific investigations? Uh, should we just concern ourselves with astrobiological investigations, or are there other areas of science uh, that really matter? But of course, the philosopher in me also wants to ask, is science the only thing we should be thinking about at all? Um, you know, I've talked with some planetary scientists who are kind of, you know, a little frustrated by the way that 
Mars can be portrayed in popular culture. There's this sort of image of what Mars could be if humans develop it in certain kinds of ways. There's this tendency to want to think that for Mars to be truly beautiful, uh, maybe it has to become like Earth. Uh, and so there's some thought given to the idea that, well, maybe what we ought to do is learn how to appreciate, say, natural Martian forms of beauty. Is there, is there something to that? Um, and if we can devise this appreciation for Mars as it is, as opposed to the Mars that sits in many folks' imaginations, what we might find more and more is that we have reasons to try to protect or preserve Mars in its largely pristine state, uh, because there are just so many things that we might decide are worth learning about it once we've decided to you know, conserve those opportunities. Uh, so I think taking a much bigger mindset as we think about the uses of the space environment, uh, not only considering scientific uses, not only considering commercial uses, but considering the kinds of perspectives that you know a, a, a nature artist might bring if they're to visit Mars and try to produce artworks based on their experiences of, of the Martian scenery. That I think we just need a much more holistic sense of what's happening in these environments uh, and that it shouldn't sort of be left to the first person that gets there gets to decide what happens uh, for the rest of time. Mm. Okay, okay. When the mysterious black ships arrived, they devastated humanity's peaceful space settlements and obliterated their populations. Earth appears defenseless against the mysterious marauders. Two of humanity's finest starship captains must push themselves to the brink to save humanity from total annihilation by an enemy that will not identify itself or reveal its motives. Together, they will plumb the scientific wells of existence where the primordial knot of space-time may be unraveling. The Space-Time War by Les Johnson and BaneBooks.com as I was preparing for this interview, it occurred to me that uh, I was out west one time and driving in an older car, and my engine overheated as I was approaching Las Vegas. I was uh, going up into the mountains. It was mountain climbing, basically, that kind of overheated my car. And, and I pulled over to let it cool off, and I realized, I looked up, and I, it was the, just gorgeous, absolutely the most beautiful scenery I had ever seen in my life. And I think it was called the Painted mountains or painted desert or something there was these giant cliffs carved by wind over eons that were like striated striated in uh, in red and orange and yellow it was breathtaking um and i just happened to stumble across it and but there was no organic things there that were beautiful mm -hmm. just the rocks and so i it occurred to me because i'd been pondering what james maxey had said he was fixated on the biology but there's other things that are worth preserving besides biology. Um, and I don't really have a position on the, the question of protecting Martian microbes, which at the time in the panel, it occurred to me, protect it for who? Who's, mm -hmm. Who are we protecting it for? Um, which of course, it, uh, at the time I was thinking there must be a sentience that we would have to protect it for. Uh, but he was going for something broader than that. Um, and I guess this is not really a question, but basically, what what is your take on that as far as, um, uh, do you have anything to contribute based on what I've just said? I know it's just yeah, rambling. Yeah, good. Um, so the paper that, that you mentioned earlier was actually, uh, the, the first version of that was a talk I gave at the 2016 TV meeting uh, in Chattanooga hmm. about uh, thinking about planetary production, even for interstellar missions. But the what I had to say apropos of that, I think, still applies more locally. And even when you're thinking about uh, life, so suppose that, you know, we find life on Mars and now we really can't avoid this question, 
about, you know, do we take a hands-off approach or do we just go there and not care what happens to the life? Uh, I mean, I think it's a very, uh, there are a lot of different perspectives you could have, uh, depending on whether you're talking about microorganisms or life forms that are, you know, somewhat more complex than microorganisms. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of folks that have attempted to lay out sort of ethical frameworks, ethical views that say that, you know, even microbes have sort of non-negligible moral standing and especially, you know, rare, unique Martian ones. Uh, might have a kind of value that your humdrum terrestrial microbes don't. And so their sort of uniqueness or rarity um, might provide us with an impetus to, to be more careful in our interactions with them. Uh, there will be folks that will say that these are entities that have value in themselves, that these microbes would be intrinsically valuable, and for no other reason than their own, you know, health, whatever it means to talk about, you know, things being good and bad for, for Martian microorganisms. Uh, that maybe we have a duty to sort of respect that value, and that might recommend a bit more of a hands-off approach. Um, on the other hand, uh, microbes on Mars could be the kinds of things that studying them scientifically leads to certain developments in biology and medicine, uh, and you could get some dramatic new you know, medical treatment that could come from this study of this separate origin of life, if it is a separate origin of life. Uh, and so... I mean, there are all kinds of both, uh, you know, instrumental and intrinsic values we could bring to this. And I'm, I'm a bit of a fence-sitter when it comes to that question of the value of microorganisms. Um, I haven't been fully convinced by any arguments I've seen that they sort of have this freestanding value that requires them to be protected for their own sakes. But I haven't really seen uh, any decisive objections to those arguments either. Uh, and especially when you hear from people that, that really engage in these astrobiological investigations, right? the people that have thought about these possible you know, uh, instances of life most, that, that do have this possible concern for them. I do take that seriously as a philosopher, because I know that the more you're familiar with an area, the more you've studied something, the keener sense you have for what's important about it. Uh, and so... You know, it's also something to keep in mind, you know, what voices do we listen to more when we think about this issue? Uh, and I'm a bit more interested uh, in the, the voices of the people that are directly supporting the missions that might seek these things out, the people that really have a strong stake in this in terms of, you know, they probably have some insight about a, a way to think about this kind of life that's not necessarily available to me uh, as a non-specialist. And if I can try to understand their work and see why they have... Uh, things to say about that. And the person that, that, that I have most in mind here is the astrobiologist Charles Cockle uh, from uh, University of Edinburgh, who sort of spearheaded this movement in environmental ethics to think about microbial ethics. And he's got some very interesting things to say about why we might place value upon microorganisms uh, for things like, you know, respecting that the world we live in uh, is so dependent on microbial life. And if you, you shift that over to any microbes that might live on Mars or in the subsurface oceans of Europa or Enceladus, uh, these are entities that are able to do things that human beings just can't, which is to survive unaided in these other planetary environments. I mean, you know, it's hard not to find uh, some kind of awe in that. And I'm someone who's tempted to say that that awe might be worth taking into consideration when we contemplate decisions that might impact that life. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I watch myself and others, too, for biases, especially in scientific reasoning. 
And because we live on a planet that's completely awash, literally in biology, you cannot escape. You can't find a, a room or a spot that you can go to that is devoid of biology. Um, are we biased by living in this ocean of biology? Are, does this bias us uh, against it or in favor of it? Uh, does it alter our approach to it, evaluating its value? So I don't think there's any one, you know, single reaction that, that folks are going to have. Uh, I think in some sense, um, especially when we compare environments that contain life to environments that don't. Uh, and of course, in the paper that, that, that you mentioned earlier, I call this the sort of life bias, where uh, there are folks that have a mindset that say that, you know, there couldn't be anything of moral significance in an environment that contains no living organisms, that it, that's an environment that could never be valuable in itself. Uh, it, it's only a mere resource, whereas uh, the same people might say if we found life in, in an environment we thought to be lifeless, that would imbue it with some kind of value that we need to appreciate independent of any purposes we might use that environment for. Uh, so th there's a bias in that sense where we tend to think that the presence of life makes a place more valuable. Um, and on the other hand, um, there's this other way we could think about bias in terms of, you know, some kind of terrestrial bias, that Earth is, is the ideal case and these other places that aren't like Earth are, you know, somehow deficient, defective, don't live up to what Earth is like. And so even if there was some simple microbial life on Mars, you know, it, it would still pale in comparison to, to Earth, which has this, you know, hugely complex global ecosystem. Uh, so there are different ways that, that bias could creep in uh, when we think about, you know, what a person is going to say about Mars if it contains life versus whether uh, if it doesn't contain life at all. And we see people occupy all kinds of different positions and say, you know, even if we find clear evidence of life on Mars, so what? They're not human beings that we found there. I mean, we don't do much in the way of respecting microbes here on Earth, so why bother doing that on Mars? Uh, and, of course, the response to that would be, well, maybe there are some important differences between terrestrial microbes and, and Martian microbes. Mm -hmm. um, one of the practical aspects of uh, outside our own solar system, traveling to extrasolar planets, we're, of course, we've uh, discovered over, you know, over 3,000 of them so far. And we're always looking, especially newspaper reporters, are looking to, is there, a is there oxygen in the atmosphere? Earth has um, oxygen in its atmosphere for uh, about 2003, I mean, excuse me, two or three billion years since the great oxygen of uh, catastrophe, they call it, when uh, microbes overwhelmingly produced this large amount of oxygen in Earth's atmosphere. And that was, it killed off a lot of, uh, a lot of microbes because it, they couldn't handle this amount of level of oxygen. Anyway, if we find another exoplanet, uh, that is an exoplanet outside our solar system, that has oxygen atmosphere that we can breathe and could therefore colonize and therefore live at least, uh, you know, in a normal manner, you know, without pressure suits and stuff like that. That would be uh, a high priority location. But if Earth had uh, de uh, developed uh, oxygen atmosphere because of microbes, they that other planet probably did too. And this may be a recurring problem for uh, future civilization colonizing these planets it sounds like a major problem philosophically what is what's your what do you how do you think it will play out and what's your take on is it good or scary or bad or 
Yeah, because it, it's tough to get oxygen uh, in your atmosphere, at least a high concentration of it, without <laughs> living organisms. So far as we know, right? Yeah, yeah. So maybe there's some weird way that the, the atmosphere is interacting with with the surface of, of that planet that, that's creating this system in sort of unanticipated ways. That's one of the great things about space exploration is it, it puts our technologies and our ideas into these completely novel environments, and we can't help but find things we didn't expect. And when we try to accommodate that stuff, into theories, that's how we get some big advances in science. But of course, that's that's a different question than the one you asked. So, um, uh, all right, we, we found this extrasolar planet, and it looks like it might be habitable, which means it probably already has life. Mm -hmm. uh, what I don't see is any need to send humans there right away. Um, I think, uh, insofar as there is a sort of long-term species survival need to get off of Earth and to establish settlements elsewhere uh, in the universe, I think the solar system is going to be a good home for us for a very long time. Uh, I mean, I think uh, in the range of you know at least hundreds, if not thousands of years or longer, there's going to be uh, more than enough for us here. Uh, and you know, I even have trouble imagining uh, it becoming really economical to send out some kind of world ship mission to colonize another. A settlement solely for the sake of you know long-term human survival. Maybe it happens because some you know really really rich people get together and decide they want to do this. Uh, but as far as something that just arrives naturally as a sort of policy initiative that uh, the people uh, of this future universe uh, desire, I think that's quite a ways off unless things change dramatically as far as either technology or threats that start occurring in the solar system. Uh, and so I think we have a lot of time. Uh, to study things before we have to send people there to live. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, with things like the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative and uh, being able to potentially send rather small payloads uh, to investigate some of these places on the scale of decades as opposed to, excuse me, as opposed to centuries, um, you know, if we can increase the ability of those kinds of missions to send back reliable data uh, to be able to, you know, place satellites in orbit and transmit information back to uh, back to the solar system about what's happening there. Um, you know, we, we don't have to risk this situation where the first time we actually discover life is when somebody, you know, crushes it by stepping foot on the planet. Um, and I think, moreover, it's irresponsible to send out humans uh, prior to that kind of investigation because um, if you don't actually have some kind of serious scientific examination of that planetary environment itself, how do you really know for sure that it has all of the resources that humans need to, to survive and build a civilization? So I would say that, uh, I wouldn't say that I'm a staunch advocate for human space settlement as a sort of default option in all of these situations. I'm, you know, I, I have a lot of reasons why I'm cautious about that, that are not only related to the science, but also to, uh, you know, the well-being of the society that you're trying to build there. But um, I would hope that space settlement advocates would agree with me that you need to conduct a lot of precursor research before you can be confident that your settlement would be successful. Uh, and that's research that not only you know, helps the cause of space settlement, but it also just helps out science in terms of revealing a whole lot of additional information uh, that can be you know, assessed, analyzed. Uh, and, and so you know, I, I, I'd hate to find a situation where people thought it was a great idea to, to make your first mission to, to the Centauri system be a crewed mission. I, I just think that's remarkably foolhardy. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay.
Do you have an idea for a podcast or a video series, but don't have the means to produce and edit it? Or are you simply looking for someone to produce and master your podcast or video series? Well, look no further. The team at Videos, Vocals, and Adventures can help fulfill all your needs for your video and podcast series. Visit VideosVocalsAndAdventures.com today and find their contact information page for affordable pricing offers to get your next project started. You can also find previous series they have sponsored to get a better idea of what they do and how they can help. Video Vocals and Adventures produces this podcast and video series, From Here to the Stars. VideosVocalsAndAdventures.com That's VideosVocalsAndAdventures.com Visit them today! On the uh, university website, it lists a number of your interests. Uh, One of them is to highlight the practical scarcity of space resources, such as near-Earth asteroid resources, and to focus the space resource conversation more on issues of justice. Justice is a lot in the news lately, but uh, uh, what is the what is the the idea behind that? Yeah, uh, this is, this is actually a question that weighs pretty heavily uh, in my book that is just coming out through Oxford Press: The Value of Science and Space Exploration. Speaking and of which, is it available on Amazon, or will it? Is it available for pre-order? Now the Kindle's been open. There were some distribution issues uh, with COVID nineteen shutting down uh, some press operations for a while, but it looks like Amazon is starting to ship it. Okay. Uh, I think uh, it can also be ordered from the Oxford site as well. Uh, even if the print edition is still, you know, a couple weeks away, the Kindle edition uh, has been out and it's actually a fair bit cheaper. Okay, and uh, what is the what is the title again? So the value of science in space exploration. Okay, okay. So this is not for the video, but I was kind of hoping that uh, I would have shown up to the office today with the package of my offer copy so I could put one right behind <laughs> it. But uh, I haven't gotten mine yet. Um, okay. Uh, but okay, so let's let's pick up again. So. What I'm a little troubled by in conversations about sort of space resource exploitation is that people tend to focus on, you know, resource totals. You know, what, what's the total sum of water on the moon? Well, what is the total sum of water we could extract from all of the near-Earth asteroids? You know, what's the total sum of iron that we could mine from all of the main belt asteroids? And, I mean, you get really, really big numbers, uh, right? So. You know, John Lewis has tried to outline how many humans could exist sustainably on the resources of the NEAs, on the resources of the, the entire solar system, and we end up with, like, you know, quadrillions of human lives that could be sustained with the resources that are available to us in the solar system. Um, the problem is, it's not as though we're ever going to be at a point where we have everything available to us, that, like it's just a, a big stock room we can walk back to. Uh, for every uh, you know asteroid, it's going to be on a slightly different trajectory, and so the mission is going to be have to be launched at a slightly different time. It's going to take months to get there, months to conduct the mining operation, months to return that material back to Sizzler Space. Uh, and so, when you start to apply some of these practical filters in terms of you know which targets uh, have you know low delta V. Uh, rendezvous possibilities. How frequently can you send missions out to different near-Earth asteroids? The numbers start to get pretty small, especially compared to those total figures. So I I think we need to think a lot more about how do we manage a system uh, where we're only going to have access to a very small amount of any given resource at any given time. Uh, And of course the moon can be more attractive than asteroids for some reasons because it's, you know, it's sort of 
more or less fixed in terms of the amount of time it takes to get there and back from Earth, and so we don't have to wait months and months and months to send our mission out. Right? It's just a you know three-day trip there, three-day trip back. Um, but when you think about you know what, what's the easy stuff to get on the moon if you're thinking about water at least, and that would be the the, the permanently shattered regions in the North and South Poles where some of the crater floors uh, uh, aren't gonna are aren't going to be ever exposed to sunlight, and so you've got some ice that's been trapped there, confirmed by uh, the L-Cross mission a number of years ago. Um, when you start to add up, you know, what's a plausible estimate for how much water might be there, uh, you're only talking about a few cubic kilometers of water. Uh, you're not talking about this huge amount that would be an inexhaustible resource for a fuel depot. Uh, and moreover, you know, you're going to need that water to support the humans that are living on the moon, uh, to support, you know, uh, hydroponics, uh, and, you know, there are just countless industrial processes that require a whole bunch of water, so either we're going to have to find completely different ways to manufacture and maintain things, or we're going to need to use quite a bit of water. And there's a very real chance of running out of whatever you have at any given moment. Uh, and so you have to be very careful in terms of how you set up a system for this resource acquisition to either ensure a continuous supply or to ensure that you're using things carefully enough uh, that you don't run out of what's available at any given moment. And one thing I really worry about here um, is that if we're not careful here, if we're sort of wasteful with the first spoils we get, you know, the first few asteroids that, that, that we are able to mine or with some of the first lunar resources that we exploit, and if we don't actively make sure that we are preparing to expand our spaceflight capabilities that, you know, it's not as though all of the water we get from the moon just goes to, you know, opulent hotels on the lunar surface, but, you know, that we actually use these resources to expand our ability to reach out further into the solar system, you know, we might kind of run out of what we're able to afford for quite a long time. And so we can't even get to these further destinations in space. So, you know, I'm going to come at this from more of a social justice point of view, ultimately, I think this poses serious questions about how significantly space resources would actually be used for the benefit of you know, all humans as opposed to those that own the space mining firms. I think that's a very serious question that, that people just tend to assume automatically that the benefits will trickle down when I think that's far from guaranteed. Um, but you know, even if you don't share that concern, uh, you should still be concerned about the long-term sustainability of space resource exploitation. and. You know, whether you think it needs to be managed in a stricter way or in a more laissez-faire way, this is still a concern that should be on all of our radars. And I really think we should stop just, you know, presenting things as though all of our problems are going to be solved if we get into space. Because they're not, and even if they will be eventually, it's going to take quite a bit longer than a lot of sort of space mining enthusiasts uh, tend to present the idea as supporting. Okay, okay. Uh, another of your interests, it lists, uh, to articulate and defend the intrinsic and instrumental value of the knowledge and understanding we derive from space science. Uh, if you would, talk about that a little bit. Okay, good. Um, okay, the challenge here is going to be to, to make this uh, digestible. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I'm sure uh, you're up to it. <laughs> yeah, so, so this is actually the, the big philosophical meat of, of my book, which is trying to outline... Uh, some compelling arguments for recognizing that not only is scientific research and in particular space science, uh, you know, very important as far as helping out society, 
uh, but also that it's just worth doing for its own sake. That the knowledge and understanding we derive from engaging in scientific research and especially space science research uh, is just sort of worthwhile for its own sake. Uh, and the arguments there are mainly directed at philosophers of a certain sort. In particular, it's a discussion that's very much wedded to this subdiscipline of philosophy known as epistemology, which is the, the sort of study of knowledge uh, as a topic for philosophers. So, so it's hard to relate um, you know, exactly why, why the moves I make are ones that I make, but, but here, here's the basic picture. Um, if you're trying to explain human society at a very general level, one of the things that you have to explain is, you know, why do people behave the way they behave? And one behavior that I think is one that, that, that should be explained is, you know, why is it we have so many scientists? Why is it we have so many researchers, people that have as a primary concern getting at the truth about something, trying to devise a systematic understanding of some phenomenon. And it seems like it's just going to be descriptively inaccurate to say that all of these people are only interested in getting a paycheck or that all of these people are only interested in finding an idea that has some technological spinoff that can make them a lot of money. I mean, some people might be like that, but I, you know, I don't think that's representative of the, the total scientific community. Uh, and so I think part of the data that you have to explain when you're trying to devise a theory about, you know, what's important, what's important to people uh, is that, you know, we've got a whole bunch of folks that pursue knowledge for its own sake. And I want to say that's evidence. It's not indefeasible evidence, but it's evidence nonetheless supporting the idea that, you know, knowledge and understanding is worth seeking out for its own sake. And that's going to be my attempt to try to articulate what's, you know, inherently or intrinsically valuable about scientific knowledge and understanding, which then has a special application in the context of space, where, you know, so little is known that there are so many questions that we haven't even asked yet, that this is an area that's just completely ripe for new developments that, that, that alter our understanding of the universe at a possibly fundamental level. Um, of course, the, the instrumental picture is a little different, right? That's where we're talking about these connections between what happens in basic scientific research, what happens in applied research or technology development versus what happens in terms of the impact on society at large. And the traditional picture, the sort of Vannevar Bush uh, image that a lot of folks have uh, is that you know basic research leads to technology development, which leads to uh, advances uh, on social problems. And I think that that picture is a little too simplistic. I think that you can get scientific advances that start along in any point of this spectrum from basic research to uh, sort of social application, and that any area could pose a new problem that the other areas have to grapple with. And that this is just the whole system that, that's right for advance and development. And what's special about space science there is that, again, since so little is known, so little is understood, since so much of the knowledge is going to be completely new knowledge, uh, it just seems unavoidable that it's going to cause these sort of happy perturbations in society at large. Uh, so it's, it's a more, I don't know, complex take on this idea that there is a link. It's not necessarily a one-way link, but a link uh, between what happens in scientific research and uh, making progress on, you know, greater human problems. Okay. Uh, and how does that play a role in these other conversations? Uh, well, if we think science is important for those reasons, then it sort of increases its importance as a major stakeholder when we think about 
uh, other proposals related to space flight, things like space mining, space settlement, because if, you know, if you're thinking about the case of Mars, and we have this really important scientific investigation uh, that is trying to figure out whether there's any endemic Martian life or evidence of past life, um, and now we've got this potential threat to the viability of those investigations coming from people that want to uh, create permanent human societies on the surface of the planet. Um, you know, I, it's not obvious to me that uh, one of those concerns is clearly more important than the other. I think it's, you know, it's a stakeholder conversation we need to have, understanding that the scientific side might be more significant than most folks appreciate, and that maybe there are situations uh, in which we ought to sort of side with the scientific objectives over some of these other objectives, uh, not only because the science is important for its own sake, but because that science is going to help out those later activities, those later commercial and human activities, uh, and maybe the science can only be effectively done prior to that, and then once the scientists say, all right, we've had enough, now folks can come in and engage in commercial operations or settlement, whereas if you start with uh, humans on the ground trying to live there, it can be very difficult as a scientist coming in later on the scene knowing you know what aspects of this environment were there already which ones are the result of, of perturbations and if you don't have this basic understanding of say mars climatology mars geology it can be very difficult to predict the long-range consequences of certain kinds of disruptions that a human settlement might cause i mean the the methane content of the mars atmosphere is incredibly small and, you know, even a single human settlement, it, it's sort of waste products, you know, could release amounts of methane that confound attempts to study uh, the methane concentration, that the, the natural methane flux in the Martian atmosphere. Uh, and the bigger the settlement you get, the, the more significant the impact is. And, you know, do we know what the long-term consequences of that would be? I don't think we know that. And it might be difficult to, to try to arrive at that understanding uh, if we have to do so after the fact, as opposed to being able to study uh, the Martian climate and atmosphere, you know, as it is before humans get there. So again, that's another way in which, you know, prioritizing science at early stages can really enable uh, these later developments and avoid all sorts of unnecessary ambiguities in our attempts to understand these places. Okay. Well, thank you, Doctor. I think I appreciate you taking the time for the interview. It was great stuff. Oh, I enjoyed it. That was Dr. James Schwartz. This has been the podcast version of the YouTube series From Here to the Stars, which is created by the Interstellar Research Group. The IRG is a nonprofit organization dedicated to thoroughly exploring the science and engineering that can eventually open up the reality of interstellar travel. Find out more about our next symposium at irg.space. I have been your host, Stephen Ewan Cobb. If you enjoyed this video, please hit the like button, and you can subscribe to our channel for other such videos. On behalf of all of us here at the Interstellar Research Group, I thank you. <laughs>